podcast app. You see, there's a discourse happening. Is this book a masterpiece or problematic? One's a lifelong diehard fan, the other's a first time reader. Both are really smart and funny and attractive. Sweet feathers, sweet feathers. Hello, how are you? Just some quick check-ins before you really get into the meat of the material. Sweet belly. Hi, number 21, run away. How are you today, Robert? I'm good. I'm full of noodles and I'm ready to rumble. How are you? Well, I'm empty of noodles, but I am ready to rumble. Should we get you some noodles before we start? No. Um, let's get your six words. I have mine. You want me to start? Yeah. Ned is Lucifer, semicolon, Emancipate Jessica now. Mine is no one understands me, but it's okay. It's not okay. Why would you say it's okay? Because she accepts it by the end. She's like, oh, I guess it's fine that you're bad parents and a bad sister. Honestly, I mean, we texted very briefly and we did basically save it for the pub. I think we both, it's a lot of feelings with this one. It's a lot. I mean, it really takes me back to my own angst filled teenage years. Same. Um, she's really able, Francine is really able to capture, and of course, Kate Willem, um, kind of the feelings of like, no one understands me, no one wants me here, I'm just going to run away to San Francisco with this random guy who may be a drug dealer, although hard to say. There's some textual evidence that he might be, he might not be. Um, but it just felt so real and so frustrating. And it's just like, I, it was just, it's not a super, it was not a super enjoyable read to me because she channels Jessica's perspective so effectively. And it's like, well, this is just kind of a, I'm not loving my feelings, but we've got to feel our feelings. So. Yeah. 100% same. Like it, it's so well done. It's so well written and it's so, and that means that it's so, it's a bit of, of a hard experience to read because it's like, so- Oh my God, I just saw your shirt. Wait, is this, is this Runaway? Listeners, what you don't understand is that Pardo is currently modeling a shirt that is the same image as our couvert this week for Runaway. Yeah, it is unlicensed. I did get it from an Etsy seller that I am angry at for reasons I'm not going to get into, but I do love it. And it's Jessica and it's the Jessica image on the cover, which, but so, well, now I think we got to start with the cover. Oh my gosh. I mean, I can't even think about the cover because I'm so focused on your sweatshirt, uh, but it's the same. So we don't even look at the cover because the cover is just your shirt. Mm-hmm. Is this the first cover with only one figure on it? Great question. Excellent question. I didn't realize that. Wow. Wow. If that's true, that's powerful. What I also love is the cover is Jess and she's wearing this kind of obviously 80s style, like slouchy gray sweatshirt where it's crew neck but she's even cut out the neck so that like it scoops out even more with an electric blue bra and we see her back and then she's turned over her left shoulder 
to look at us with a look that is so many things at once. Mm, It's angry. It's searching. It's sexy as hell. She's gorgeous. She's gorge. Yeah, I mean, I had the same reaction. So it's so amazing, this cover. Look. I love it. I mean. J'adore. Oh, you just showed me the tagline, unfortunately. Oh, that's okay. I'll just say, since we're talking about the cover, one of the things that's so interesting about this book, the trajectory of the plot, like, does not go where you'd necessarily, like, for Mm -hmm. me, it doesn't go where I'd expect in the sense that, like, she's really not wanting to run away. Right. She almost, like, backs herself into it. And, like, she's very, very self-aware of that. We've seen in previous books and remarks on the fact that the Wakefields, particularly Ned and Alice, particularly Ned, and of course Elizabeth and Stephen participate at, at times. I would say Ned is sort of the, the head of the snake, as it were, can act demonic mm-hmm. towards Jessica. Basically, just she is invisible to them. She is undermined 100% of the time. They give her zero benefit of the doubt. They give her zero room to grow. They assume the worst of her. They treat Elizabeth completely different. They show her no grace. They absolutely refuse to attend to her feelings or even consider the possibility that she has some, an interior life. Um, they are terrible. Yeah. In this book, that got taken, turned and turned and turned. So that it was times 1,000. Mm-hmm. And that's why I said Ned is Lucifer, because the word demon now, it's like too... It's, now it's lost its force. Mm-hmm. We must. I need to upgrade him to Lucifer. Um because the way they treat her in this book is so terrible. And yet, for basically 100% of the book, for like 99.9% of the book, she has this attitude of like, damn, I'm feeling frustrated, but I know deep down they really love me. And even though I'm having these sort of ideas of um, whatever, like, I'm going to try to work it out. And she like, over the book, tries to talk to them about it 80 million times um, and is like cut off at every turn until she sort of ends up doing this runaway thing, which she tries for them to catch her in time and they and whatever but it's like i mean i do think as a sort of concept the word runaway kind of implies like already a it being temporary or like maybe wanting to be caught that's what i love about this cover of her looking back with her body she's projecting the stance of this like social category of runaway but she's looking back because she's even up until the end wanting them to to come get her which is yeah. such a beautiful ambiguity because if you looked at this without reading it i would think she's running away and she's looking back sad to leave her family like, that's what I would think the looking back was if I didn't read the story. That's not what it is. She's nope. saying, where are you? Where are you? She's running away as a way to connect, paradoxically. That's what's so gorgeous about it. Um, I feel like you basically did give a plot summary of the book. The plot summary of the book mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. the parents, Elizabeth and Stephen, are all really, really shitty. And, and Jessica basically is like, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. She even leaves a letter behind saying, I'm running away. I'll be on a bus and leaves it out where they will find it so that they come to the bus station and save her. But alas, when she shuts her door, the letter, the breeze from shutting the door blows the letter away. So no one sees the letter, Uh, but Elizabeth still manages to find her and bring her back home. And it's kind of like all is kind of forgotten. Well, they have a family conversation about it and then it's something crazy. And then it's, yeah. Part of this gets facilitated through Jessica develops a new relationship with this guy called Nikki, who's sort of like a quote-unquote bad boy, but is like experiencing a lot of pain and like they relate together over their alienation from their families. And like, he's going to San Francisco and tells her like, come meet him there. And like, 
that's how this all sort of gets whatever. I was telling Robert over text that like I have a lot of notes on this one, but I don't know how many it actually is because half the pages is like scrolling the size of my head because of just the rage I'm feeling at the Wakefields and particularly at Ned, right? But the other reason I was having such scrollings is because the B plot, Robert, the quote unquote B plot of Ricky Capaldo's legal case. Oh my gosh. It is enraging on all these other levels. So there's this B plot that I don't even know if we want to go to now, but there's so much to say about it. And it drove me absolutely mental. Mental. And Liz was, Liz, Liz, let me just say something, actually. I'm going to say it right now and here. Liz's behavior towards Ricky Capaldo in this book, I think, is maybe her most abhorrent behavior we've witnessed yet, period. Oh, certainly. I don't think there's even a competition. Okay. It is, yeah. it is unforgivable. It is irredeemable. It is unbelievable in its ferocity and horror. Yeah. Elizabeth acts in a manner that is horrific in the B-plot to their friend Ricky Capaldo. And there's a lot of really, I think, interesting conversations to be discussed about what the hell... Like, there's a lot to unpack in that scenario and what the hell is going on there. You want to guess the taglines? I cannot... I mean, I already know one of them. Oh, you, saw the, you saw the first one. Jessica has had enough. Jessica's had enough. Oh, Jessica's had enough. Mm-hmm. Um, You're not going to be excited about this. I what mean, is it? Jessica's had it with Sweet Valley dot dot dot. Yeah, it's it's not Sweet Valley. <laughs> yeah. Oh, how great it would be if a change of scenery were all Jessica needs because she could flit off to New York or summer in Paris or something. But no, it's not Sweet Valley. No matter where Jessica goes, the stale air of the bell jar follows her. I don't actually know what that means. Oh, it's it's the like. And I know it's like Sylvia Plath, but I don't know what the metaphor is. Well, it's just the idea that that in many ways, being a teenage girl, there are these feelings in modern society where it's like you're so stagnant and you're so trapped, like a bell jar, which like like, kind of like a cloche or uh, something that goes over. Oh, gotta stop doing that gesture. Sorry. Um, And so. One of the the things, one of the central images of the bell jar is this idea where it doesn't matter if the scenery changes because you're still in the bell jar. So the air around you is still the same. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that feels very resonant with this text. Yeah. I mean, that being said, like she'd be better off without her family. So if she went somewhere else, her family wouldn't be there. So that would actually be good. So I think she should run away. And oh, yeah. Not, like, I don't know if this is necessarily the way to do it with Nikki, but like, mm-hmm. she should create a long term plan. And maybe we can actually talk about that later in the book is like, if we were going to advise Jessica, like, what would we actually tell her she should do? Because her family is psychotic. Um, Anything like, in terms of like, what you expected based on how the last one ended versus how this one went? Any surprises? Did you kind of? Well, so listeners will remember that our last book ended with just like, everybody treating Jessica so, so, so shittily. And then the the cliffhanger is Jessica embarks on a desperate course of action in Sweet Valley High number 21, Runaway. Which is really interesting because I was expecting her to run away pretty early on. Mm-hmm. And that more of the... T- it would I was expecting it to be more kind of in the style of... Um, Oh my God, what? Oh, kidnapped, exclamation point. Like, Mm -hmm. I felt like this would have echoes with kidnapped, where it would be mostly focused on Elizabeth and the family while Jessica is running away. But I think that 
Kate William realized, Kate William and Francine realized that Elizabeth's not enough to hold a book. So we can't have Jessica run away and have it be focused on Elizabeth. We need to still focus on Jessica. So a lot of it is like Jessica's life as a pre-runaway. And then she doesn't even attempt to run away until chapter 10. It, but it's almost like like the way I am thinking of it, it's like the book is about her trying to not run away. Yes. But it's like, yeah, it's so funny because this book's called Runaway and it's like the whole time you're waiting for a runaway. And it's yeah. like, then at the end, she finally gets on the bus and you're like, okay, at least something's happening. You know, and they like are trying to heighten it. So, okay, oh, they just miss it. They're going to have to trace chase the bus two hours to Culver City or whatever the fuck it is. So she ends up making a one bus stop. Yeah. It's a one bus stop out of town. So it does raise a question of just from a sort of denotational meaning perspective. I mean, what is the definition of running away? And also, have you ever run away, Robert? I did when I was little. I got to the end of the block. I was going to say, I think I can remember when I was little getting... I mean, that that's why this is such a resonant novel is because I think most people have had that feeling where you're like, no one understands me. This is terrible. I'm out. So... The, the text opens, Elizabeth searched through her closet one more time without success. It was no use. Her new blue silk blouse wasn't there. And in my mind, I'm primed to be like, oh, she's going to go ask Jessica where her blue silk blouse is. And Jessica will be nowhere to be found. And all that will be there will be a letter saying, I've run away. <laughs> that makes sense. That would have made, I mean, I'm laughing because it's like, I've obviously read it. So I didn't expect that. But that would be what you would think <laughs> Like yeah. the book's called Runaway. The last book ends it's with like, Jessica's gonna run away. And then it starts with like, where's Jess? Like, <laughs> where is Jess? These books are wild. So good. Elizabeth stomps in through the bathroom and bursts into Jessica's room without knocking. I'm like, oh my God. Oh my God. And then it's just, Jessica was lying on her stomach on her unmade bed, her long tan legs hanging off the edge. She was leafing through the pages of a magazine. It's such a good fake out to the reader who is expecting trauma and drama to have like Jessica in the most blase, lazy, lazing about pose. It's very funny to me. May I observe? We were just talking about how this is different from Kidnapped, but one of the ways in which it's similar to Kidnapped is this thing of like, and this is what they're so masterful at, is the raising tension by lowering tension. Mm -hmm. So it's like starting these books called Runaway and Kidnapped with the where's the blouse? Oh, where's Jess? Oh, and then the sort of anticlimax of she's swinging her long tan legs reading a magazine on her messy bed kind of vibes. The same way in Kidnapped, it starts with like this very unexpectedly mundane like zipper mm -hmm. scenario. And you're like, I remember the way I felt in Kidnapped was that made me feel like, oh shit, so they haven't realized yet, it hasn't started yet. Kind of so now I have to wait for this whole thing to build for them to not know, not know, not know, and then realize and then where is she? And with this, it's like obviously different stakes and different situation, but it's like it's almost like, oh, Elizabeth thinks the only thing she needs to worry about right now is a blouse. Like we've got a lot to get through till the runaway. <laughs> right. So there's a lot of blouse talk. Basically, Jess obviously has taken Liz's blouse. I should have asked you, but I need it in a hurry. I had a date with Neil and he's seen everything in my closet at least 137 times. And Jessica hands Elizabeth the blouse and says, the problem is, Liz, you're never around here when any of us needs you. You're always off with Todd or working on something for the newspaper. You really have to try to understand that your first allegiance should be to your family, those who love you best. I mean, such a clear call for help. Just a desperate cry. 
She's literally saying, yeah, fine, we're talking about a blouse, but what I'm really talking about is you're not present in my life in the way that I need you. And it's presented like, haha, just can turn around even a blouse to be this, like, to make herself a victim. It's so crazy. And it reminds me of, like, remember when um, Betsy was staying with them mm-hmm. and promises? And Jessica said something sort of similar of, like, or maybe it was just her internal thought process, but we commented on her being like, wow, Liz puts that trash Betsy before her own family. Like, how could she do this to me? For Jessica, like, she really means it. Yeah. Like, and this is a thread for her, right? Because like one of the things that she has always resented about Todd and about Enid is that they take time away from Liz and like Liz's commitments and stuff takes time away. And like, just sort of always a little bit, I think wants more time with her, more attention from her. And so she means it. It's so sad. Yeah. And I think we as readers are meant to see it as Jessica's just trying to get off the hook for stealing this blouse. No, let's be real here. Jessica needs support and love and guidance and no one is giving her anything. 100%. May I add another layer? Always. And this is just, it tears at my heart. Uh-oh. I'm going to have to really briefly, and I'm going to do it really quick, but just give a little bit of context of the Ricky Capaldo B plot in order Please. to make me come here. So as we said, Ricky Capaldo is their friend. So what happens is Ned, who data point for Ned being a family lawyer now, okay, so I guess he's not in estate or real estate law. I guess he's a family lawyer, according to this one. He is representing Ricky Capaldo's grandparents, basically his paternal grandparents. So Ricky Capaldo's parents have split. His dad is like a deadbeat and I don't know what else, but he's absent and whatever. Um, and the mom, who I guess has sole custody, doesn't want the grandparents to see him. They are trying to get, I don't think they're trying to get custody. I think they're trying to get like visitation. And so Ned Wakefield is representing these the grandparents and basically he ends up like for some reason like very unethically and should be disbarred telling his family all about the case invites elizabeth to go observe it elizabeth decides to write an article for the sweet valley newspaper not about it and like thinks that's a great idea and basically her and ned get like increasingly involved in this and increasingly invested in the grandparents like rights through the lens of what's best for the child and the child getting love and they get so caught up in this thing and like the thing that struck me so much about that and the thing that felt to me like the biggest reason why that b-plot's in there is because it's like ned and liz are invested in the fact that a child should be loved Mm. on an intellectual level Mm. And as they are pursuing that as like an intellectual value and as a philosophy, and as Ned's there in the courtroom being like, think of the children, think of the children. He is literally like silencing his own daughter who has tried, has done a million cries for help to him. who He refuses to talk to who he insults at every turn, like tells her she's too dumb to show up to this thing. Um, and Elizabeth, the same exact way, like she, ref- Jessica says, like, I really need to talk and like all this stuff. And Elizabeth is so invested in this the child in this situation getting like the love they need from their family and it's so twisted because they are so perversely like invested in this to a degree that like emotionally they are so disengaged from their own family and what Mm. is so glaring that's rich that's very i did that's that's beautiful i had not thought about i had not connected those two things that's really helpful for me so thank you but so that's why i think the line of jessica saying you know you put other people before me is also sort of like as you would say, part of the engine that drives the boat or something like this. Exactly what I would say. You know, I think it's kind of letting us know that that's the theme. I love that. 
That's very rich. We immediately find out that we do not have time to process through this stuff around Jessica's cry for help and her needs because Steve has left school. He has quit school basically because, as Elizabeth points out, he's just having a real hard time dealing with the whole thing around Trisha Martin's unfortunate passing. He thought it might be better if he took some time off from school to pull himself together. Yeah, so he's having a hard time. Um, One thing I did like about this is that it's not just he grieves for one book and it's done. Like the fact that they're continuing the storyline of his grief. I like that. It's realistic. I love that it says the passage of time had only seemed to increase his pain and loneliness. You know, it's the thing of like, it's not linear. Um, And the twins are expecting that he'd be getting over it, they call it. But of course, you never get over grief. Even in Jessica's like pits of despair, she still has the reserves of empathy and love and concern to be concerned about Stephen. Yeah, she shows much like she's the only one in their family showing compassion for someone else in their own family. Yeah. Whereas they're also in compassion for random other people. Like even like Steven, when she said, I need to talk, he's like, I'm in a hurry to go jogging. Yeah. Which is a paradox we'll talk about later, but yeah. Even like at the party that Steven ends up going to, for example, I thought it was interesting that like Liz doesn't get, Liz is like, oh, how's Steve? And Jess is like, he's doing great. He's so happy. It's all he needed. It's like sarcastically. And Liz thinks she's serious. And, Liz, and Jessica knows that Liz hasn't checked in on him even once. So it's like, None of them are even care about each other. We've got this really strange moment where Elizabeth basically says, Stephen's having a really tough time and I don't think he's going to be able to get out of it by himself. And Jessica's like, oh, should we help? And then she's like, she, uh, Jessica mentions that Kara is having a party. And Elizabeth's like, oh, that's a great idea. Let's invite him. And Jessica goes, I don't think that's a good idea. You know how Steve feels about Kara. And Elizabeth says, I think it is a good idea. But, but you should be the one to ask him. You need to do it. And Jessica has empathy and understanding for relationships. And it's like, that's not going to work. He's still mad at me for the last time I tried to do something like this. I just got to get an uncrustable. Hold on one sec. Perhaps the most horrifying sentence in all of literature. I have to just go grab an uncrustable. <laughs> truly, truly, truly terrifying stuff over here on the pod. Oh, God. No. Are you eating it straight out of the freezer or do you thaw? Well, no, I thaw. I'm not an animal. <laughs> I mean, I know it's uh, perfect temperature. And I mean, it's, you know, I, you're just, you're jealous. I have one, you don't. Let's just is it this. peanut butter and jelly? Is that what it is? It absolutely is. Okay, and when I God. tell you, it is the fluffiest, most delicious thing I've ever tasted. I'm, I'm going to be physically ill. Do you know this fun fact about your co host? I've never had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. That's crazy. Why? Uh, Because the smell of peanut butter and jelly together really, really nauseates me. And it looks like from what I can see on my Zoom video, the the sight of peanut butter and jelly together is also fairly nauseating. So you're okay with just peanut butter? Yeah. But the combination is the problem. I love jam. Love peanut butter. You put those two things together, I'm out. But do you understand that, like, that's very strange? Yeah. Okay, where were we? Elizabeth says, let's invite Stephen, but you do it, Jessica. And Jessica immediately says, that wouldn't be a good idea. And Elizabeth simply says, calm down, Jessica. I've got reasons. And Jessica is like, yes, so do I. I, I'm not doing this. 
And Elizabeth goes, listen, first Crazy. of all, Ka Crazy. Kara is your best friend. It would be more natural for you to invite him. And second, I'm going with Todd, but you don't have a date yet. Do you? You could say you don't have a date and you don't want to go alone. Like, this is such a stupid, stupid plan that Liz doesn't want to own herself. Mm -hmm. And she finally says, come on, for Steve? And she's taking advantage of Jessica's empathy, concern, and understanding for her brother and manipulating and gaslighting Jessica into doing something that she herself knows is not the right answer. Yeah, it's terrible. Terrible. We go downstairs for dinner. Did anything jump out at you about the preparation plans for dinner? Ned's in an apron. I wrote just Ned salad nonsense. Ned is being like, <laughs> I can't even hit. I just can't. I'm so triggered by Ned at this point. It's like, worst. I can't even handle it. Okay. So he's wearing an apron over his shirt and tie. On anyone else, the apron might've been comic, but Ned Wakefield was the kind of man who looked good in almost anything. I just want to hit him in the face with a baseball bat. Is that right? Yep. Okay. Um, he says, hello, princess to Jessica. Kiss any frogs today? Disgusting. They're all avoiding the topic of Trisha. What about we the salad? You don't. You didn't care about the salad nonsense? Oh, just he does salad nonsense. And he's like, a proper salad. You need a man, not a woman. And 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 uh, you have a master's degree, but why can't you even make salad dressing? <laughs> he literally says, you know, I've never been able to teach your mother how to do justice to a salad. That woman, that woman has a master's degree, but she still can't mix a decent dressing. He hates his wife and children more than anyone on the planet. It's disgusting and disgusting. I wish he would run away. I wish he... Let's talk about what we wish would happen. Let's do fantasies about... Instead of fuck, Mary kill, it's like a fantasy of like what we would like to do to Ned. So, no, I, this is going to go bad real quick. Okay, fine. <laughs> we learned that the girls have a week off. And finally, Jess very gently invites Steve to the party and gets yelled at by everyone. Being like, how could you even think of telling your brother to maybe come, he'd like to come to a party? Really just, don't you think it's a little too soon? And Steven's like, why can't you just stop trying to manipulate all of our lives? And then the mom's like, yeah, Jess, I thought you'd be a little more sensitive. And then thank God, at the bare minimum, at least Elizabeth at the first chance does be honest and say, guys, 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 like, it was actually my idea. And Jess and I kind of planned this together. Um, and then they're all like, oh, okay, sorry, Jess. I guess you guys had good reasons. Like I said, it is a good idea. Although it is good that Liz jumps in to set the record straight, what it really does is put in such stark relief how they treat Jessica's plans versus Elizabeth's plans. Double and Jessica's standard. such a double standard. That would be a great book title. It's infuriating. And Jessica is smart enough that she's... She gets it. She says, well, this is nothing new. I swear, sometimes they just look for chances to jump all over me. They never do that with Elizabeth. And they don't. Jess is feeling like she's not part of the family. She tries to talk to Liz. Liz doesn't get it. And Jess is thinking, I'm tired of being the bad twin. Sometimes I wish I'd never been born. And there are so many. I mean, this is only chapter one. And we've had three clear cries for help from Jessica. Mm-hmm. And no one is picking up on anything. When the parents are yelling at her, she says, sure, now that it, Elizabeth explains it all, it's okay, right? If it was Elizabeth's idea, it must have been a good one. And then she stands up and says, may I be excused? I promised Cara I'd pick her up at 7.30 and I must be almost that time now. 
And then Ned just goes, if you're finished, of course. Like, this is clearly Jessica saying, please see me. And no one will see her. She does the exact same thing with Liz. Everyone was worried about Steve and they were all nervous, right? But I have feelings too, Liz. Do you think I like being treated that way? And Liz just goes, treated like what? Well, what's crazy about it is that she still spends the next 10 chapters having a pretty good attitude about it. Like yeah. being like, well, then I woke up the next, she woke up the next morning and was like, well, I know they love me deep down. I just have to have a good talk. And she tries like literally 85 fucking more times to talk to them normally or to whatever and like communicate this. And like, she gets frustrated. And then she's like, well, I'm, you know, I'm gonna talk to Liz. I'm sure she'll get it. Well, I'll talk to Steve. Oh, I'll talk to mom. I'll talk to dad. Oh, let me try one more time. Let me try. It's like, like I would have been oh, yeah. at the bus station after chapter. People with me. So how come you brought me? I don't know. You're different from anyone else I know. I didn't want to share this place with just anyone. I wanted to show it to you because I thought, I think you're pretty special. Now, Nikki, it's hard for me to tell. Is Nikki a good and sweet guy? Or is Nikki a master manipulator who knows exactly what Jessica needs to hear and is saying that? Is, has he identified her as showing some weakness and is he preying upon it? That's my question. I think he's mostly a good guy. I think he's misguided. Um, sure. And I think that he, like, doesn't necessarily know how to be a supportive... Like, I think he he's a bit more focused on himself. And, like, so, for example, like, when she tells him her hurt, like, his answer is, come to San Francisco kind of thing. I think he is attracted to her. I think he probably is well-intentioned and being genuine when they are connecting and talking. And, like, I think he probably has real feelings for her. I think he's so in his own contortions of hurt that he can't really... That makes sense. ...be a supportive boyfriend to her. So he doesn't always, you know, that's what I think. He mentions running away to San Francisco. They have, I think, an important moment of, like, this empathy. It's like she asks him, like, oh, I bet you take all the girls here or something. And he's like, no. And she's like, oh, I bet you tell it to all the girls. He's like, no, like, I wasn't lying or something. And it's like she looks in his eyes and sees hurt. Mm. And she feels for him because she understands how it feels to be misunderstood. And she apologizes. And again, like, it wasn't like she said something wrong. He was being oversensitive, obviously. Like, it's weird that he was, like, prickly like that, I thought. But but as far as, like, her perspective, I did like that we saw her, like, look in his eyes, think about how he, sense how he felt, think about how he felt, relate that to how she understands what that feeling is like, and then show him compassion. That feels like so much growth. The next day, Jessica is awakened as her room is flooded with daylight. Elizabeth is coming in and has come, I guess, to wake her up so that she can go to the preliminary hearing for Ricky Capaldo's family. And Jess was like, well, I'm not going. And then Elizabeth says this ridiculous thing. Jess, I don't know what's eating you lately, but I, for one, have had just about enough of it. And I think it's pretty rotten of you to let dad down like this. Let dad down? Yes. I think he really wants us at that hearing today. Wants you, Liz. He wants you at that hearing, not us. I think he made that pretty clear last night. So that's what it was all about. What? The mysterious disappearing act you pulled after dinner? You think that just because everyone didn't hang on your every word? Hang on my every word? Are you kidding? Nobody ever listens to a thing I say, Liz. They're all too afraid they might miss one of your pearls of wisdom. Come on, Jess. Dad would love to have you there. If he wanted me there, all he had to do was ask me to come. Is that what you want? Do you want him to come up here and ask you? 
I don't want anything, Liz. I don't want to come to the stupid hearing. I don't want dad to ask me. I don't want anything. I just want to be left alone. And that's another mirror of the, if you want me to go, ask me to stay. She wants him to ask her to go, but she says, don't ask me to go. But I also think she rightly is, I mean, there are several layers to this. One layer is just, Jess is right. He showed no interest in her going whatsoever. And the concept of letting him down is insane. Yeah. On another layer, it is truly, truly unhinged that Ned wants his twin daughters at this custody hearing for their high school friend. Like, what? So weird. At some point, Jess should be like, wait, also, Liz, like, it's really fucking weird if dad does want us to be there. He doesn't have us go to other cases. Why are we going to this incredibly personal, incredibly private, incredibly none of our business preliminary hearing? And then again, my scrawlings is just they get bigger and bigger because then Liz actually, even though Liz acted not so nice to just in that interaction, then when she goes downstairs and talks to Ned about it, she actually is more compassionate and says, I think we actually really hurt Jess's feelings. And she actually acknowledge that, acknowledges it when she's talking to Ned. And she says, you know, she thinks you don't care if she comes. I think it might make a difference to her if you could actually just go ask her and then which is such a ned should be saying like thank you for doing my job for me and like letting me know how i should do and then go do this very very simple thing for a parent to do a child and says you know what i'd love to have you there i was wrong he's not even being asked to say he was wrong robert he's being asked to say hey just you want to come with i'd love to bring you It'll, it'll be really interesting and then we can all go for lunch after It'll be really interesting to watch one of your classmates' friends be... Sure, but just within the world of this, right? But then Ned Lucifer, okay? Because Ned Ned also says... First of all, he cuts Elizabeth off, right? He's like, look, Liz, I know you have just best interest at heart, but I don't think your mother and I should have to bow to her every whim. Die. Die, Ned. You two are very different. And I just don't think this is the kind of thing Jessica would be interested in. And it must be noted that it was Jessica who asked her father for a job in his law office. And it was Jessica who continuously at the office in her short-lived temping job tried to learn as much as she could through the limited avenues made available to her. And he wouldn't even give her one second of his time. And she actively expressed interest in the law. Fuck you. And he's like, and then she's like, but can you just talk to her? And he's like, no. We always try to raise you two as individuals. Jessica can make up her own mind. If Jessica wants to come along, fine, but I'm not going to go beggar. Truly, truly awful. Liz goes to the preliminary hearing and she runs into Ricky. And there's no good way to, to do this, listeners. I mean, there's no way to read this text and think like, oh, maybe Liz is okay. Maybe she is redeemable in some way. She runs into Ricky and says, hi. I hear you're doing an article on all of this for the newspaper, he said coldly. Elizabeth found it hard to look Ricky in the eye. Yes, yes, I am. Liz, I think I've been a pretty good friend to you, haven't I? Sure, Ricky. Then look, I'm asking you not to write this article. The most reasonable request in history. Why, 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 I, why, I, I, I know it's a good story for you, but it's my life and I don't exactly appreciate it being made public. Please, Elizabeth. Like he's 
His eyes are getting misty as he begs this monster woman not to splash his family's secrets in the on the front pages of the Sweet Valley Times. She's truly a monster. And then he leaves and Annie comes and is talking to Elizabeth about it. And Liz is like, but how can he let his mother do this? Doesn't he care about his grandparents? And Annie has the normal reaction. Of course, he loves his grandparents. That's why it's so upsetting. It's like, Liz, like, I just don't get how Liz can be so obtuse. Like, this is such a complicated, painful sort of family situation. And like, how dare you come into it knowing almost nothing, like having one weird limited piece of information and like suddenly feel like you're in a position to be like making judgments and like criticizing how Ricky's handling it. Fuck you. And to literally be the author of how it is going to be remembered in history. Like she's writing the history book about this as if she has some kind of omniscient abilities and as if she understands the situation at all, which she doesn't. And then she goes for counsel to Ned and she says like, look, I just ran into Ricky. He doesn't want me to write the article. He doesn't want the whole thing made public. I'm not so sure I don't agree with him. This is where it goes off a cliff. I mean, it already went off cliffs, but it just goes off a really big cliff here. And she says, I don't know. It does seem personal. And Ned gives this advice. I think with any good story, you're going to step on some toes. You just have to ask yourself if the pain you cause some people is greater than the enlightenment you give others. That is called a pathological delusional narcissism. May you, you know die in a car fire. I wrote, okay, Jeremy Bentham. This is called utilitarianism. This is called not ethics. The most number of good for the most people is not the way to decide what is right and wrong. It's She's creating unnecessary suffering, let alone the idea that her article in the Sweet Valley News is going to provide such enlightenment. Because she says, what, think of the children? How dare you? She's not even supposed to be saying think of the children. She's literally just reporting on what happens. Can we please get to Tierra Verde? We're almost there. But Elizabeth does stop and smile at her father and say, you know, for an old guy, you can be pretty smart sometimes. Then they go to lunch. So now Jessica's in a party with Nikki's kind of fast, fast crowd in Tierra Verde, about an hour's drive. So it's probably just a little bit closer than Melvina. But a very different scene. (laughs) Yeah, I love this language of, um, it says that she was anxious to show Nikki that she could fit in, or rather, that they could find a kind of common ground between their two very different lifestyles. And again, it's like, where do they want to fit in? Where do they not want to fit in? Where do they want to be able to just be sort of, like, neutral? So she wants to be able to, like, hang comfortably, but she's not taking beers, and she... It, you know, is repeatedly being offered beers every five seconds by this girl and keeps telling her no. And I, um, I wrote down growth. I wrote mature compared to how she tried to fit in with Pete and his crowd and too good to be true. And she mm-hmm. ended up blackout drunk because she was so worried about fitting in here. She does want to fit in, but she's having boundaries where she's not feeling, she's not, you know, going to be too pressured to do mm-hmm. something. She's not comfortable. They're passing around marijuana. She says no to the marijuana. And so does Nikki. Nikki also says no. Good for Nick's. She's relieved. Nikki, I think, is being like, again, compared to like a Scott or whatever, I think more sensitive to her and more attentive to her than we've Definitely. seen people be before. Like he's like, 
making eye contact with her to sort of be like, oh, this is annoying. Sorry. Haha. Or like, then he gets to get her and like leave early because he can see she's probably not that comfortable. Like he's being a little more, you know. And then he asks her to come to San Francisco with him in two days. He does say, listen to me for a second. You don't think two people could be more different, Jet, right? But why do you think we got together? Maybe it's because we aren't so different. Maybe we're looking for the same thing. You're different, Jess. You're different from anyone I know. You're just the kind of person I've always been looking for, and I'm not going to let you go. And then it's like everything Jessica had been raised to believe rebelled against what Nikki was telling her. People who run away from home are losers and quitters. But then she's like, well, maybe I can sort of reframe what running away is. Maybe there's a way that it can actually be cool and like, um, you know, I'll be independent and successful and then I'll come back in a few years and like everything will be good. And like maybe, but then she sort of realizes, you know, deep down, my parents love me and I'm not really going to do that. And she tells him, you know, I, it's not, it's not because I don't feel ways about you, but I'm not going to run away with you. And he's like, okay. And then they have a very scary drunk driving. Luckily, everybody's fine. Nick's a little, Nikki's a little bloody, but we're fine. We see a bad interaction between Nick's dad and Nick. Yeah, like, so they get in this car accident and the parents, Nikki's parents come to get them. And like, they basically tell Nikki, get the fuck out of our house. We're done with you. And they also don't ask either of them if they're okay or hurt. And then Jessica gets home and she's kind of reflecting on the whole thing. And she's like, oh shit, like Nikki's parents could easily have told my parents I could have really gotten in trouble. And she resolves that she's going to have a deep talk with her family and fix things. And then we get to chapter nine, which absolutely breaks my heart. So all Jess wants to do is be able to get things out in the open so they can all understand each other. And chapter nine opens with mom, dad, I want you to know I'm tired of the way things have been around here. I know I've been a cause of a lot of trouble and I'm willing to try hard to be a better person, but you've got to help me. You have to stop thinking of me as the old Jessica and give me a chance to change. Jessica looked into the mirror as if she expected a response. So we think she's talking to her parents, but no, she's talking to herself in the mirror. Yeah, not only is she only rehearsing, but she got up early to Mm. work on her speech. And as you can see, because you just read it, it's literally four sentences, all Jessica wants at the beginning of chapter nine is the chance to say four sentences to her parents. Four sentences in her 16 years. Surely she'll be able to get four sentences in. In addition to it just being four sentences, the sentences they are, she's saying like, look, I see a problem, but I see most of the problem with me. I'm going to try and be better. All I ask, all I ask is that you let me try to be better and stop thinking of me as this old Jessica. And it's so heartbreaking because it's like she takes so much of the burden, so much of the ownership, so much of the culpability. She's not saying they're doing anything wrong or asking them to take any accountability. It's all on her. It's so sad. And then she thinks about running it by Liz, but it's too upsetting. She's like, I can't handle that. And then goes downstairs to talk to her parents. The mom has to leave early, so that's not going to work. She's like, okay, well, I guess I'll talk to dad. He doesn't, of course, bother to look up at the newspaper Like, he doesn't look up from the newspaper to see her face and just, she asks him one question about how's going with the case and he starts going on and on. And about, and again, just the absolutely sickening irony that he is interrupting his own daughter to talk about how upset he is that this, at this sort of intellectual argument about children's rights and children not having love. And she's like, she's got a flat tone, but her dad doesn't notice. 
And I'm then just like, well, Liz is really great and cool. She's going to be a great reporter. Got to go. Bye. And then he gives her this invitation. If you want to, you know, you're welcome to come along on Friday and watch the hearing too. I don't know how interesting it would be for you though. Does Liz find it interesting? Well, yes, but you and your sister are different. He's telling her she's dumb. Yeah, absolutely. He's disgusting. And then he goes, well, you can tag along. Thanks. Fuck him forever. And then her last chance is Steve. And she says, Steve, can I talk to you? He says, look, Jess, can it wait? I want to get in some jogging right now. I'm playing tennis later with some guys and I need to loosen up. You have to go this second? Sorry. We'll talk when I get back. I promise. I'm sorry, but as I said, Mm -hmm. jogging is by nature a leisurely activity that happens at a leisurely pace. Mm -hmm. It is an impossibility to be in a hurry to jog. And then Lila calls and she doesn't talk to her. And she's like, okay, well, if anyone's willing to listen to her, Elizabeth was. She'd always been the closest person to her. She always knows what she's thinking. And of course, Elizabeth's going to be the one. Elizabeth is, of course, distracted, trying to figure out her outfit to go to court. She's like, I'm really in a hurry, but if there's something important, I can skip the thing and we can talk. It just goes like, no. Elizabeth's is like, okay, we'll talk when we get home. The big thing is she checks her watch. Oh my God, that's the line. Wait, oh. yeah, this is the best line I've ever read in my life. So Jess says, Liz, we have to talk. Liz looked up at her twin. Sure, Jess. She checked her watch. What's up? No. Oh, Liz, Jessica thought. It all would have been okay if you hadn't done that. If you just hadn't looked at your watch. That killed me. Brilliant. Just the Elizabeth checking her watch, because already Jessica's feeling so much alienation and so much like she doesn't want to talk to me. The checking of the watch, it's like it puts up that final wall mm-hmm. that makes it an impossibility. Well, yeah, I mean, it shows so clearly what Liz's priorities are because Jessica's having such a hard time and Liz is like, oh, yeah, no, we can talk. Uh, can you fit it into my, like, you know, my billable hours or blah, 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 blah. She's turning into her dad. So she re- reminisces on Nikki's words. We find out that Nikki is actually leaving tonight and Nikki says, have you been thinking about my offer? Jessica took a deep breath. Actually, that's what I called to talk to you about. Chapter 10 starts. Jess is thinking about how her friends and family are going to react. Which is such a normal adolescent kind of, it's such a normal adolescent fantasy to like picture your own funeral and think like, how will people deal with my death? Or picture your own running away or leave taking and like, how will people kind of handle this. So I think Francine and Kate capture so beautifully, like what would a 16 year old think about this? And she keeps like pleasant memories of her family keep coming up like Sundays at the Wakefields, sleeping in late and waking up to a leisurely brunch and the trip to the beach with friends. And she pushes that out of her mind. She's not, she can't think about this stuff. And so she writes a letter saying that she's leaving. What's so crazy about the letter is Jessica's first problem was deciding to whom she should address her letter. The entire family was too general. Mm -hmm. She didn't want to single out her mother or her father. If she picked just one, it would make the other feel left out. The only choice was Elizabeth. Like, that's crazy. The entire family was too general. That's nuts. It means like, Liz is the only one who gives a shit. 
Mm-hmm. And then she writes a letter. Dear Liz, by the time you get this, I will be far away. I'm sorry if my leaving causes you a lot of pain, but it will be better for all of us in the long run. There are many reasons why I'm going. It isn't just your fault. You can't help being the way you are any more than I can. You're so good. It would just be better for all of you if you'd forget that I ever existed. I've never been anything but trouble anyway. This doesn't mean I'm forgetting about you. I'll be thinking a lot about all of you as I take the bus to my new home. I love you, Liz. And make sure you tell mom and dad that I love them too. And Steve, even though I know he hates me. Someday I'll return, I promise. But not for a long time. Please don't try to find me. My mind is made up. I'm sorry for all the trouble I've caused. Still your loving sister, Jessica. And then she puts down the pen, wipes the tears from her eyes, reads the note over, and adds, P.S. I'm leaving you my new jeans. I think they make me look fat anyway. So as I was reading this the first time, I was like, I I literally highlighted the I'll be thinking a lot about you as I take the bus to my new home. And in my head, I'm doing all of this analysis about how like subconsciously she doesn't even want to leave. And she's saying this thing about the bus so they can find her. She doesn't even realize this. And then, of course. Yeah, she just completely like acknowledges that she did that because she wants them to come get her. She's so brilliant. She goes She's so self-aware. Deep down, Jessica knew the real reason for writing that letter. She wanted her family to come and find her. She didn't really want to leave. That was why she'd included the reference to the bus in her note. Most likely, Elizabeth would come home, find the letter, figure out where Jessica had gone, rush to the bus station, and beg her sister to stay. Everything would be different then. Then they'd all take her seriously. It's like she's had so many cries for help throughout this text. Now she's like, okay, no one is hearing my cry for help. Maybe they'll read my cry for help. I just love that they keep herself aware about what she really wants through the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So she's getting her stuff together to leave. She's telling them she's staying at Lila's. Um, and as she slams the door and heads to the bus station, what she doesn't know is that in slamming the door, she had created a breeze in the room. Not a big wind, but just enough to knock the letter over and cause it to fall behind her dresser. Such a classic kind of soap opera literary very sweet trope. trope a letter loves to fall i mean it's like under romeo, a bed it's like romeo and juliet and the friar not being able to communicate fast enough it's like um in the notebook i wrote every day and then like the letters never got to rachel mcadams it's interrupted communication all right back at the courtroom and okay. elizabeth is surprised that ricky hasn't smiled once during the proceedings. And that's her observation. Ned gives his big final speech about think of the children, his men's rights speech. Um, Elizabeth is psychotic to Ricky. She tells him, you're weak. You're giving up. How can you do this? Um, Your grandparents just want to love you. And you're just punishing them for your dad. And she like gets so angry at him and chokes up. And I, this was where I was just like, what exactly is going on here? Like what anger is she misdirecting and what righteousness on behalf of the grandparents is she misdirecting? Like, I just assumed she was evil because she's half Ned and the other half's Alice, which is no peach. And then because of Elizabeth's brilliant words, Ricky has um, a revelation and he says, I actually am going to make a, Beach, and I actually love my grandparents and actually let's everyone's going to be good and it's all over 
Liz doesn't say anything to Ricky that would motivate him to do this. Her brilliant speech is not brilliant or helpful. No, her brilliant speech is it's crazy. Everything about this is crazy. They're acting as if she is doing this like heroism. It's yeah. like what she says is so stupid. What and she what she's says, been saying the whole time has been so stupid. Yes. And this continues. She doesn't like he's giving up. It's crazy. They go back to chambers. Everything works out fine. They figure out a plan. And then Ned is so proud of his daughter. Something tells me you had a hand in all of this. Could be, Elizabeth smiled. Sometimes people just need a little push. It's just like, y'all are so self-congratulatory and so terrible. And I just have to say, Liz, who was like, could tell something's wrong with Jess and was like, are you sure everything's okay? Like, I can skip the thing if you want. And Jess is like, no, no, it's fine. And then she's thinking to herself, like, okay, I'll talk to Jess as soon as I get home. When she gets home, she decides to start working on her article before calling Jess to take advantage of the empty house. And I'm just like, finally, she notices the empty room. Jessica's room is all tidy and her stuff's missing. She she calls Lila. She realizes Jess isn't at Lila's. They're like, maybe she's with Nikki. They look in the phone book, figure out where Nikki lives. They go to Nikki's house. They Nikki's mom's like, I don't know where he is and I don't really care. Ned is like, we should have listened to Jess. And then they get home and they're like, what are we going to do? And Ned has a quiet, confident tone. And then Stephen's friend, who like knows Nikki, basically tells them he's in San Francisco. And they're like, okay, well, I guess she's either took the bus or the plane. Let's split up. Jess and Steve go try to get her at the bus station. They can't find her. And there's all these like near misses and almost this, that, and the other. And they end up driving her to one stop away. They all cry together on the bus and hug. They come home. So it's like Jessica finally sat down with her family and talked about all the things that were bothering her. Everyone got into the discussion. But at the end, the relationship between Jessica and her family was stronger than it had ever been. Let's all promise one thing, Ned concluded. No matter what we're doing, no matter what any of us is involved in, it's fair to say none of us could, it could none of it could be as important as this family is to all of us. I think we can all agree to keep that in mind. What? What? And then Jess writes a really, really sweet letter to Nikki saying, like, don't take this as a sign of how I feel about you. You know, you're a really good person. And I'm sorry that I couldn't come and that I can't help you with what's going on with you. But, you know, good luck. I hope things work out. But it just wasn't the right choice for me. In the incredibly boring scramble to get to find Jessica, there's this really funny moment where Liz and Steven end up at the bus station and they're looking for Jessica, obviously. And so they run and they get to the front of the line. And Steven's like, have you seen a girl? She's about five, six. She has beautiful blonde hair and aqua blue eyes. And then he realizes that he's standing next to Liz and he just grabs Liz and goes, she looks like this. And it's like, I thought that was kind of a funny identical twin moment. Oh, I thought what happened was they were like, did Jessica Wakefield buy a ticket? And they were like, we don't take names. And yeah. then they're like, but you, you just went to get on the bus and now you're back here. They're like, oh, wasn't it that? Uh, it's it's both. He says, Whatever. yeah, it's boring. <laughs> I mean, I guess they've just decided everything is water under the bridge because at the end of this, Jessica says, well, listen up, just to show you all how happy I am to be home. I'm going to cook a special dinner for all of us. The Wakefields exchanged worried glances. I have a better idea, Mr. Nate Wakefield said cautiously. Why don't I give you some money and you can take us all out to a really special dinner? Jessica smiled slyly. I've got an even better idea. Why don't you give me the money for a really special dinner and I'll buy us pizza instead? Then I can use what we saved and buy myself this terrific sweater I've been dying for. How does that sound? But I yeah, do absolutely like, hate 
Ned. It's funny, but it is them being like, okay, even after this whole conversation, like, we still don't understand that you want us to stop teasing you about the one time you fucked up dinner. Yeah. Um, And then we get, like, cliffhanger, except in mine, I didn't have an actual cliffhanger. Thank you. I didn't either. Book 21, Runaway, does not end with their traditional cliffhanger. Why is that, Dr. Rebecca Pardo? That is because the next book is not a regular format. Oh, we're just going from 21 to, I guess we're just going from 21 to 22. Nope, not regular formats with Valley. The next one in order of publication, which is until further notice, the order in which we are conducting this podcast, our next book is super edition number one, Perfect Summer. Okay. Baby's first super edition. I'm nervous. I'm excited. I'm scared. I can't wait. It's our first super edition. I am not going to say anything about that, but we're going to do the super editions. We're going to do the super thrillers. It's going to be great. I can't wait till we get to the super thrillers. They're amazing. Um, But so it's going to be, we just did 21 Runaway. Then we're going to do super edition number one, Perfect Summer, which will be followed by 22, Too Much in Love, which will bring us back to um, Bill and Dee Dee. Sure. I'm happy to put them on the back burner while I have my very, very first super edition. I am super excited. Thanks for listening to Sweet Valley Hive, hosted by Robert Marks and Rebecca Pardo. For more, check out our Instagram at Sweet Valley Hive. Theme song by Yessie and artwork by Elliot Carroll.